And what are you drinking today, Jacob? Blue Moon, the last of the blue, the big 24 pack oh, of yeah, Blue Moons I got yeah. at Costco. I'm going with Blue Van. Ah, so blue is the theme of the beer today. And I don't know um, what flavor Blue Van, I think it's mango? It's, it's something vaguely citrusy as well, which only proves the point that citrus is somehow tied to the moon. No, it's blueberry, not mango. I lied. Blueberry is not citrus. I actually had Blue Van at a restaurant a few weeks ago, and they put blueberries in the beer. It was weird. Well, like they just dropped mm-hmm. some blueberries in there? They put blueberry, blueberries in it like it was ice, which is weird, but like you put orange slices in Blue Moon, so it's not that weird. You know, that reminds me of the, what was it, Clarfu? Clar... The, the bake dish that they make in First Cow, where they just drop blueberries into it. Oh, yeah. It's a connection. They just drop blueberries yeah, into that. Know, that looks good. You had a beverage that you just dropped blueberries mm-hmm. into. Beautiful. Delicious. Speaking of First Cow, we'll get there eventually, but <laughs> what's been going on with you? What have you been watching? Uh, I never know, because you don't always update Letterboxd. I don't. Uh, uh, it depends after. on the movie, because sometimes I'll just watch a movie that I'm like, eh, I don't really feel like going whole hog on this review so i'll just upload it uh as far as what i've watched i'm just gonna uh, be brief i don't think i've really watched all that much aside from our movies that we were supposed to watch oh actually no i lied i've actually watched quite a bit um i just want to just jump straight into it mind game okay so mind game is the movie from the director of night is short tommy galaxy tommy galaxy and night is short walk on girl what's his name um his name is I'm not going to look right now. It's Masaki Yuasa. I'm going to check to make sure. Yes, yes, Masaki Yuasa. No, that is correct. Now, I'm going to go on record saying that I think you should watch Mind Game because Mind Game gave me very similar vibes to your name. Interesting. Um, It is very weird. It's really weird. It's not what you think it is, though, because by the trailer that both you and I have seen, it seems like it's similar to Night of Short Walk On Girl, where it's a sort of like... You know, uh, it's almost like a series of short stories rather than, um, you know, one complete beginning to end narrative. And all I'm going to say is that a majority of this movie takes place inside of a whale. <laughs> Not what I, what I was expecting. Whatsoever. Exactly. Exactly. Well, by the trailer, it looks like someone, some coked out animator just decided to they had like a, a three hour long film and then yes Masaki Yuasa decided took some coke one day and decided to cut it down by 90 percent exactly and it is that for a while and it starts off really weird but by the end it does the same thing that your name does where it starts really simple but then goes into this weird like spatial sort of transcending time and existence kind of narrative that i'm like oh jacob i think would like this interesting because there's a chance that i won't like it whatsoever and there's a chance that i will really like it yes it's either going to do it well or yeah let me not say well it's either going to do it the way i like it Mm. just the way that your name did it or it's going to be some way that i don't appreciate it but uh, it's not really I don't th- I don't foresee myself being in the middle on that kind yeah. of narrative. All I'm going to say and this is going to sound like a weird comparison, but it will make complete sense when you see it. It is night is short walk on girl meets the tree of life, which is weird. But yeah, uh, I also watched Blue Jay, which is a great little romance movie. Very, very low budget. It's sort of like before the before trilogy, where it's literally just two people talking the entire time. And there's literally only three speaking parts in the movie. The two leads and then one shopkeeper. Shopkeeper was this 1700s. He runs a convenience store is what I meant to say. Uh, I watched Blaze, which is a Inside Lewin Davis type movie. A conveniencer. A conveniencer. Obviously, yes. the person that runs a convenience store is a convenience. Well, you know, that's it's it's similar. Uh, Blaze is a movie directed by Ethan Hawke. It was boring. Um, I rewatched A Serious Man. Good movie. Hilarious. It's hilarious. It's good. It's funny. Mere surmise. The Goys. Yeah. <laughs> That guy, that guy's dad, Stephen Park, is the uh, Mikey Anagita from Fargo <laughs> and the Korean store owner from Do the Right Thing. As we discussed on this very podcast. Yeah, we did. A few episodes ago. Um, 
I rewatched Good Time. Great. Is one of those things where like I, you know, it's just one of those things that I, I felt like putting it on one night, and then I really thought about why do I feel like watching that movie, and it's because those stupid Robert Pattinson memes, where he's just standing by the fridge. You know what I'm talking about? <laughs> yeah. Because you sent them to the group chat. Though there's something about his face in that picture that every time I see a meme about it, I I just laugh. Um, rewatch Psycho. Psycho is a good movie. I, well, go ahead. Never said it wasn't. Oh, I know. I know. If anything, I'm the one who's harder on Psycho than you were. No, I'm pretty hard on it. Well, that's the thing is that like Psycho for me, it's it's funny to me that it's his most popular and well-known movie. But anyone who's like super into Hitchcock will tell you it's not his best. And even me, who's not super into Hitchcock, there's like two or three that I prefer. But I will say like the first 40 or 50 movie, uh, 40 to 50 minutes of Psycho is one of the best movies ever made. It's just that once uh, Marion Crane dies, it's not as good. Chandler and I have a split take on this. Because I'm going to say there's some really good stuff in the, the first 40 minutes, but I don't. I find it very problematic. Problematic? What's so problematic about it? Her behavior is beyond uh, <laughs> manic, suspicious nonsense. And I'm not sure like it wasn't manic, suspicious nonsense. It, it kind of takes me out when she's just acting the most suspicious possible and that might just be a it's a me thing oh are you, like when when she goes to sell her car and she, she goes to sell her car amongst other things when she talks to the police officer she's sleeping by the road as soon as she gets to the motel uh, actually like the opening five minutes or so really great in the motel everything in the motel is really great it kind of slumps when she dies but then it picks up in the last 30 minutes i really like i agree um what that's okay i don't know I need to see it again. Uh, I have a different reaction to Psycho every time I watch it. So, well, the, my initial reaction to Psycho was I thought it was pretty good, but the one opinion that has been consistent is I hate the five minutes explanation of Norman Bates's state of mind at the end. I understand why it's there. I understand Hitchcock didn't want it there. It's still really annoying. So let me but clarify with you. Oh yeah. Are you referring to just the doctor's exposition and not Norman Bates's direct address to the camera? Or are you talking about both? No, yes. Just, no. I love Norman Bates' okay, direct good. address good. to the camera. That's amazing. Um, it's that, yeah, it's the doctor going off for like literally like three or four minutes. And I'd be forgiving of it if it was a quick ex explanation but they give you like a a complete case study on this phenomenon. It's it's not good, but it's one of those things that every time I see um, this movie, I hate that more, but I appreciate everything else about it more at the same time, um, because I do think Anthony Hopkins in this movie is just he's just one of the best villains, uh, Anthony, but not villains of all or, time. No, not Anthony Hopkins. Perkins, not Anthony Hopkins. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It is one of the few films. One of the reasons why I will always return to it, no matter what I think of it, is that it is starts out in Phoenix, Arizona, and it's one of the that's few true. Films it is that weird. Takes place in Phoenix, which I believe you watched another film that takes place, quote unquote, was, in Phoenix. <laughs> I was going to get to that. I'm just going to say real quick. Another movie I watched was Love Streams. That might be the best Cassavetes movie. Well, I think you'd it. like it because the last like 20 to 30 minutes are really weird. Like, do you remember in the end, uh, those scenes in opening night where Jenna Rowland sees the ghost of the girl that was killed? Yeah. And those are kind of like the worst scenes in the movie because he's going through these weird, surreal horror things that just look terrible. Mm -hmm. It's like he learned his lesson from that because he goes for the same things, but it's actually really effective. Interesting. You so have you have my curiosity. Yes, it is the most it is the most stylish John Cassavetes movie yet. Okay, but yes, as far as the movie that takes place in Phoenix, uh, I, you actually watched it really quickly. I, you recommended I it, until... and then I watched it the same night. <laughs> yes, and the movie is uh, Real Life, directed by Albert Brooks. Which I've never seen which, any Albert 
Brooks. Ne- neither stuff. have I. It was one of those things where after I binged all of Mike Lee like a month or two ago, I'm like, okay, I'm going to give these director collections a chance. And I didn't realize how much um, Albert Brooks made as a director. And I know two people that are really in uh, big fans of his work that I admire are um, Ryan Johnson is a huge Albert Brooks fan. Hmm. And um, so is Ari Aster. Hmm. Both really like Albert Brooks. Yeah. The only movie I know of his, because I had never heard of real life. The only one I know of is Lost in America, which it has a Criterion edition. It does. Which is the reason it why does. I know it. It came out pretty recently, like a year or two ago. The Criterion, at least. The movie's like 20 years old. But yeah, we both watched real life. And what did you think of real life? It, <laughs> it is the driest mockumentary in the history of mockumentaries. Like it is none of it is played for jokes or laughs whatsoever. <laughs> and the my only complaint is that a lot of my laughs in the film, uh, which I burst out like I was genuinely laughing, which is really nice for a change. Um, yeah. But they were it was mostly front loaded, a lot of the comedy for me. And near the end, I kind of my interest waned, but I found it really uh, an interesting film to watch at the very least. Especially so. the ending. Yeah, <laughs> I think the ending is it, hilarious. Blaring <laughs> music from uh, Gone with the Wind and they. Yeah, he burns the fucking house down. It's not exactly like it kind of goes off the deep end near the end. Yeah, which is fun. Uh, I'm not sure it adds a whole lot to the film in terms of what it's trying to say about uh, yeah the real life being portrayed on film but it, it's just it really bizarre fun. yeah bizarre yeah. and fun and a lot of my a lot of my laughs came specifically from knowing the filmmaking process and then seeing <laughs> the dumb shit that there was going on here but very subtle dumb shit like it's not yeah the first like 10 or 15 minutes is actually really hilarious like the the just him explaining to the camera the selection method of all these families. Best part of the film. Where they, where they have like the role reversal thing. <laughs> where they have the, there's a parent, the parent and the child switch roles and the, the child is berating his father for <laughs> doing things. And then like right after that, he said, this process was actually so contentious among most of our families that it actually eliminated 30 families, 30 or something families from even doing it, which saved us $25,000, which they could be like talking about how much he saves, how much things are costing. It's funny because like they say at the beginning that they 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 pick 50 or so families from each state and they go through like 800 tests. Which I just think is hilarious. It's really weird. And I said in my review that he's like way ahead of his time because I think like it is too bizarre for a 70s audience. I don't know if you read the review, but Mm -hmm. Roger Ebert like trashed this movie. (laughs) (laughs) And I I genuinely think it's pretty hilarious. Like especially um, the the big the part that made me laugh the most was when the dad fucked up that surgery on the horse. (laughs) <laughs> oh no! <And> then, <laughs> then Albert. Then he goes to like request Albert Brooks not put that footage in the movie, but the footage of him requesting not to have that footage in the movie is in the movie. <laughs> and then the it's uh, just so dumb. Yeah, the, the horse owner comes by and is like, "Your horse is we lost. Your horse. Like, well, let's go find it." And then it just film drops it. Or when the um, the African American scientist I don't remember his name accuses <laughs> Albert Brooks gets hung up on the him accusing him of not being a frequent flyer, <laughs> and then he just said the ending of that bit is just like he doesn't get the point. It's he, he's the humor, mad. particularly like you're looking at like frequent flyers. There's some funny psychoanalytical jokes. There's some <laughs> jokes about cameras and they're using technically digital cameras they're like these Tec- giant yeah. motherboard <laughs> the type helmets. things the helmets are ridiculous every time you see a helmet in the background of a shot it's just funny a lot of the stuff i can easily see how people in the 70s weren't ready to laugh at because <laughs> exactly. especially like the frequent flyer joke it seems yeah. like something that I, I can see so many people in the 70s thinking 
just not understanding the the point of that joke because well, they take it very seriously this is like yeah this is where a lot of the stuff that the film is lampooning very subtly almost too subtly because people just look at it as like this is stupid well too subtly for an audience of that time but right. i think it works really well today yeah and particularly because we have some context of the 70s and like kind of a caricature in our own <laughs> minds of what that time is which makes yeah. it funnier the montage I also think is hilarious, especially that scene where the mother and the father start to get intimate. And then it <laughs> like right before that cut ends, it sees them looking suspiciously at the camera. <laughs> it's good. Like if you like mockumentaries, it's I feel like it's a must see because it's kind of yeah. one of the preludes to that whole genre. Yeah, it th there's some things that just bug me. The fact that the mother is interested in Albert Brooks out of nowhere um they do this really weird thing where it's very it's like half mockumentary but half like formal filmmaking mm -hmm. and they switch to it within scenes which i find kind of weird um but the whole concept of a mockumentary like this precedes all the christopher guest stuff yeah um i don't even know what a mockumentary would look like in this time i don't know where that genre started i'd say a lot of the narrative and humor tropes of the genre originated here and a lot of them are kind of almost fully fledged but it's the aesthetics of the genre that haven't quite been ironed out so it does like you said it flips back and forth between different kinds of filmmaking and it doesn't kind of commit to to the one what we normally yeah. think of a mockumentary as kind of a docu docu-esque style it was also his first movie which i find interesting mm. Because that kind of stuff, you can tell that it's his first movie because he doesn't exactly know how to present it. But at the same time, I'm like, this is a very ambitious first movie. <laughs> it's just so weird and, he's and in out it. there specifically for the. And he's in it. He stars in it. Yeah. And I love that the beginning that they're telling you that this is a real thing. And then like right after they tell you written by Albert Brooks. So the film takes place in Phoenix. The family that they find is is in Phoenix. Um but I'm sure Chandler noticed they have their introductory wide shots. They have some shots of Phoenix Sky Harbor, of some of the mm -hmm. mountains and the suburbs. And then the rest of it is clearly filmed in California to anyone who knows the layout of yeah. Phoenix and the neighborhoods. Yeah. That, that was another thing I also noticed when I was watching Psycho. They have a they have a you know that famous scene where Marion Crane's driving her car and then she sees her boss walking across the street. Mm -hmm. I'm like that is way too many people for downtown Phoenix. There's like three people on the streets at all times. Yeah, there's not many pedestrians in in Arizona. So, all right. Uh, anything else you watched? No, that's it. Um, wait, let me double check. That is it. Yep, that's it. What about you, Jacob? What have you watched? So I went to a movie theater for the first time in six months, almost. Yeah. Uh, not not in the movie theater. Uh, the Loft Cinema here in Tucson uh, was doing outdoor screenings. They have a giant, the back of their building, and they're projecting it on the back. And uh, they have seats. They're all dispersed. So when you uh, get tickets online, you select your seats. And then the ticketing machine automatically like blocks out four seats on either side of everyone and it's outside so i felt safe it was nice i got popcorn you pre-order everything and they, it's just there on your seat wow damn they've uh they've it was legit the process yeah and what movie did you see we saw jaws oh we should do an episode about jaws we should maybe get nick on link in the description uh still still a great movie uh, went with two friends they'd never seen jaws before Obviously what they, they like jazz hearsay i feel like there's a lot of people from our generation who haven't seen that film interesting it's really jaws, famous well, but a lot of people haven't seen it for some reason yeah well jaws is interesting and i know we had a whole episode about it but i'm just gonna say that it's one of those movies that i feel like critics and audiences enjoy just as much it's rare that you get that movie that both sides will consider a masterpiece mm -hmm. because it's you know it's amazingly made but it's also really entertaining as like a popcorn movie so if there's any movie to risk your life for, it's that one. As I said, mentioned before, Amazon Prime has a lot of uh, Yakuza movies on there. And mm -hmm. the, I watched Outlaw Gangster VIP, which what a title. <laughs> First off, 
but don't let that <laughs> deter you. Movies. Great, great movie. Like That's legitimately. Gangster VIP. It's one of those films where I think of Quentin Tarantino a lot. He clearly has watched a lot of films and has been influenced by those and then incorporates and improves upon ideas from other films. Mm -hmm. And this feels like a film that really gets my creative juices flowing where I get inspired to do things and build off of things that, that this film is doing. And one of the things I really like is this one. I watched this and then the sequel outlaw gangster VIP two. <laughs> it's a mouthful. Um, but the fight scenes in it are just disgustingly dirty. Like Ooh. it in a really great way gritty like actual gritty fight scenes not like people are just punching each other and they're getting hurt mm -hmm. there's one that was really uh interesting was it's just pouring utterly pouring rain and they're thrashing about in mud and everyone looks like they are having the worst time but it is really Ugh. visually appealing to watch and it just kind of are they wearing suits no we not i mean they're not like poorly dressed they're not dressed to be uh thrashing around in the mud does that out does such an outfit exist i don't know maybe a section of your closet specifically marked for yakuza mud fights <laughs> in the rain and then the, uh, there's another there's a few of these fights and they're just really great to watch and i wish more fight scenes in like actual big budget blockbusters would do this because often in marvel movies they're just so clean and boring because they all kind of run into each other because none of them have yeah. atmosphere. I feel like just just stick them well, in the mud know, they, and the rain. <laughs> It'd be so much more interesting and memorable. They do that thing where they're, they're completely clean and like their suits are freshly made or whatever. And then two or three scenes later, they just have that weird dirt patch <laughs> on their face. <laughs> and that that clot, that tatter right on the shoulder. <laughs> Yeah, so uh, Outlaw Gangster VIP, the fun, fun Yakuza movies. I haven't gone wrong yet with that genre. So I feel like Yakuza movies, it's hard to make a Yakuza movie boring because there is a level of intensity in that organization that is inherently fascinating to me. The worst I can say is they're confusing because there's often very a lot of people to keep track of. And yeah. a lot of relationships you need to keep track of because the relationships are important because they're making decisions based on who's loyalty, loyal to who, who's double crossing mm -hmm. who based on what loyalties to other people. But there was some actual like some really interesting character stuff going on in, the, in those two films, actual like kind of digging into the uh, the Yakuza mindset. So I recommend them on, on Amazon Prime. Yeah, um, the. I recently got rid of my Amazon Prime account and I kind of regret it because I know a lot of the battles without honor and humanity are on there. That's where I watch. I them. still really want to see those. And I feel like just a, there's a lot of really weird B movie type stuff on Amazon Prime that is just not all I have right now are Netflix and Criterion. It's kind of hard to find stuff on Amazon Prime. That's the issue with it. Yeah. Is that there's so much true. that it kind of gets the, the hidden gems are really mm -hmm. hidden. Like money plane. <laughs> that new best of the worst movie, the Diamond Fox versus whatever, you know mm. what I'm talking about? Yes. The yes. one that was filmed here. Um, that Did I tell you that movie is available on Roku for free? You did, I think. You mentioned it. Because not only is it available for free, but the filmmaker has her own app on Roku. An app specifically dedicated to streaming her movies. <laughs> And I'm very curious. So I was just looking up uh, the director of Outlaw Gangster VIP, uh, mm. Toshio Masuda, did was one of the directors, one of the many directors on Tora Tora Tora. I don't know oh my god, that. really? I thought Tora 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 was an English or American movie. It is, kind of. It's an English Japanese co-production, which Akira oh. Kurosawa was originally going to direct, but didn't. did you imagine Akira Kurosawa's Tora Tora Tora? I feel like I need to dance whenever I like there's needs to be music. Have you seen it? I haven't. Yeah, I haven't watched all that much. I did become a Patreon on uh, Letterboxd. A patron? Yep. 
That's the top one, right? Yes, I went all the way to patron. Okay, hold on, because now I'm curious. Because I'm a, I'm I'm a pro right now. I saw that, and then and I was hesitant to become the patron, but there's one thing I need to check, and that is going to be your background. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I specifically went through a bunch of films just to find one that I thought was funny. That's a good one. <laughs> yeah, that was good. Not all of the, like some of the backgrounds that they create for other films are just kind of blah. A lot of them are. Yeah. Um, so you kind of have to fiddle with it. Well, that's good. What do the Paddington ones look like? Oh, I didn't check. I should check. That'd be, that'd be a good one. You know, I figure if I'm using their system so much to create so many lists and yeah. to log my like I'm using it so much that at this point I kind of owe it. And two of them, I like their I like Letterboxd enough that. Yeah, that that's that was my reasoning. Was I thought this is an amazing service. I've used it so much. It's free. I can give him some money. I like this service. Now, have you gone through your um your stats for this year? Yes. So it's interesting looking at the stats. Not necessarily for 2020, but for 2019. Yeah. Uh, because I I'm worried now because all the stats that I see there are things I already knew. Yeah. Because I have an Excel spreadsheet with uh, copious Jesus amounts Christ. of detail. And now I'm worried that my motivation to do that Excel spreadsheet is going to drop off because a good 80% of the detail that I want is now yeah. covered under Letterboxd. Gen- uh, generated like automatically oh, as yeah. well. No work. Yeah. Uh, I I would like to because this I, I, I became a pro like uh, three or four weeks ago. Um, and I would like to go through um, my stats for this year because I think they're hilarious, but I need to pee real quick. Okay, so, yes, uh, they give you the stats, which mm-hmm. is interesting. And that was half the reason I signed up for the pro membership because I'm like, what have I been watching this year? And I was curious because there, I've watched a lot this year, but there's been three specific directors I've kind of binged this year. Mm-hmm. Well, obviously, Mike Lee, I've watched. That was the most. How many? Do you uh, remember? Ten. Ten films by Mike Lee. Um, second and third, they're tied, are John Cassavetes and Jim Jarmusch. Because, you know, we've had a few Cassavetes movies on this podcast, but now I, I'm just, I'm interested in the man. But then I look at my top four directors and I'm like, okay, is Mike Lee, John Cassavetes, Jim Jarmusch, and somebody, is some guy named Eric Natornicola. Like, who is, the fuck is that? What has Eric done? Well, that's the thing is that I look at my stars. Okay, my stars, Jenna Rollins, eight films, Seymour Cassell, eight films, Leslie Manville, seven films, Jim Broadbent, five films, or uh, six films. And right under them, the two, my two other most watched actors for this year are Tim Heidecker and Greg Turkington. <laughs> Because I forgot that I logged all of the on cinema at the cinema mm-hmm. Oscar specials as movies. So, yeah, I guess my top watched movies of the year are the on cinema at the cinema Oscar specials. Which, for the record, are quality films. And I'm counting them as films because I sat down and watched them for two hours. I haven't gone through my other years. This though, is really I didn't know they offered them. Hmm. So there's obviously like looking through my stats, I I find obvious things like Anna Karina, obviously because she's in half of Godard's filmography, Toshira Mifune because I I usually watch a lot of Kurosawa every year, yeah, so these make sense. But my fourth most watched act actually tied for second most watched is uh, Orlando Bloom. Like, what the fuck have I watched with Orlando Bloom in it? And then I realized I watched all the Pirates movies and now I'm watching all the Lord of the Rings movies. <laughs> so that number's only going to grow. <laughs> Orlando Bloom might be my most watched actor in, in a few days. Damn. Actually, uh, the first one is Max von Sydow. Oh. Like, what the fuck have I been watching with him in it? He's in like one or two Ingmar Bergman films. Then I realized he's in Minority Report. He's in Three Days of the Condor. He's in um, Star Wars, one of them. 
He is. The Force Awakens for about a minute. Ugh. I keep I, I keep watching uh sequel trilogy criticism videos in my opinion just keeps oh, going no. down. I, I well you know me, I never had that high of an opinion to uh begin with, but God. There are only a few channels I'll watch that criticize Star Wars because the majority of them I just find insufferable. Yeah. But the one I mean, I won't take you seriously if you don't at least agree that the return or rise of the Skywalker is the worst one. Oh no. We we we're on the same page regarding our rankings of the trilogy. Would you do Jedi Awakens Skywalker? Yeah. 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 And I think I just have lower opinions of them all overall. So to shift yeah, numbers. but you also have a lot more invested in this franchise than I do. A lot. Yeah. <laughs> that frustrates <laughs> He says me. begrudgingly. I wish you guys could see the face he made when he begrudgingly admitted he likes Star Wars. Too much. <laughs> I wish I could separate myself. I'm in too deep. Isn't it nice? Well, well, never mind. Because I was about to say, isn't it nice you rewatching a trilogy that is actually great? But then I forgot you also watched the Hobbit movies. The Hobbit is, is the the focus of what I'm doing. Reading the Silmarillion, that's good stuff. Is it really good stuff? Yeah. Dense, but it's really good. I've tried to read it before and I didn't get past it because the first couple chapters are just there are a lot of names and you have to get past it. But after that, yeah. uh, it's actually really it's it's just it's mythology. It's Tolkien's version of a mythology. Mm-hmm. It's kind of it's very interesting to explore. I think I've said this on our podcast before, but I talked about wanting to read the Silmarillion or whatever. And I thought, um, you know, I, I compared it to mythology, the the famous book that, com, you know, uh collects it it's just a compilation of greek and um whatever mythologies and somebody said oh why don't you just read the uh, the actual mythology you know why did you why did you read the silmarillion i'm like what are you talking about it's like cool because the silmarillion's fake and like in mythology's real <laughs> silmarillion's just as real as mythology they're all made up <laughs> there, there's like a weird historical context i actually give. think from it takes a lot of mental work but the silmarillion is the more thematically interesting and uh engaging work because a lot of uh conservationism and conservationism a lot of reading tolkien's uh his experiences in the first world war and yeah coming back and there's this really in the version of the silmarillion that i got there is a letter it, it the introduction is a letter that he Tolkien wrote to his publisher, which essentially a is a summary and an explanation of everything that happens in the book, uh, which is an interesting way to start the book with a summary by the author, <laughs> uh, like a complete like a multi page summary of what is going to be uh, going down. But it is interesting because Tolkien adds his own analysis analyses of what's going on mm-hmm. and. A lot of the stuff he he talks about how every story for him, although he says every story um, includes something called the the fade, which is like a fall from something. Something is lost in the process Mm -hmm. of going on a story. And you can see that in something like the Lord of the Rings, where the elves are dying. The the world is is coming to an end, but the, the men the race of men wins in the end, but everyone else, you can't say exactly that they won, including Frodo. Frodo doesn't exactly win in the end. And then the Hobbit. Is that that pain? Yeah. Uh, you need to watch the movie. Um, <laughs> and then in the Hobbit, you, you have Thorin. It's essentially a tragedy, a very yeah. subtle tragedy for children. Thorin's greed, especially uh, in the movie. Yeah. <laughs> it's really interesting. So for the viewers, I don't know if I'm ever going to do anything with this. I'm currently deep into research on The Hobbit. Yes, you are. I mean, Coward. deep. I have a cop. I don't know where my copy of The Hobbit went. It's around here somewhere. But I am literally Isn't going through the book, highlighting differences and things they included, 
it's a whole process i don't know if i'm ever gonna finish it so do it no hope on that oh i'm trying eventually i'll run out of steam though then all you have to do is watch return of the king again two towers i watched fellowship last night and then we'll see where we're going from there if you want to do that next week we can do that next week what return of the king yeah i'll watch them both fuck it okay fuck it let's do it (laughs) why not yeah don't think we had anything else planned no i'm curious what the other film is before we say hey after these two movies i'm desperate for some action i don't know what to make of that statement and i mean cache and first cow have a lot of talking oh chinatown oh yeah we're gonna do chinatown inherent vice but we could we could postpone that and do something else Okay, well, we'll, what's, we'll what's the most what's the most similar to the Lord of the Rings on the list? Is Ralph Bakshi's Lord of the Rings on the no. BFI list? The most similar to the Lord of the Rings, North by Northwest. <laughs> what? That's, that's adventure. I, Chandler, we're talking about a, a films like Come and See and Raging Bull. These don't have anything in common with Lord of the Rings. Are we that close to come and see? No, it's no. Oh, that's just my my eyes went to that first for some reason. That's farther <laughs> up the list. Hey, well, hold on. Come and see has a good amount in. Yeah, I guess you could say they're war. War, they're war movies. Anti-war movies. We'll figure it out. An we'll anti-war film out. is still a war film. I I would. Yeah. Yeah, it's true. Because anti-war isn't a genre; it's just a type of message. Mm-hmm. It's a, a sub genre of the war film. Yes. So yeah, that, that's what's going on. So point is that Jacob loves the Hobbit movies, and he's very excited to talk about them. Yes, yes, indeed. <laughs> so I've watched seventy-three French films this year, which surprised oh. me. Oh, is that that's another stat you can track on Letterbox? Yeah, uh, yeah, they have. Films, films by week, milestones, genres, countries, and languages, breakdown. So it tells me 2020 releases versus older, watches versus rewatches. I've watched 31 French movies this year, and I that surprises me because I really didn't think I did. Well, that's, that's a pretty good list. And 36 English movies. I would love to see your watches versus rewatches spread. It's It's a... It's a Pac-Man. It's 74 to 26. So. Mine is a, I have a lot of rewatches and I, I don't know if that's because I don't know if it's because I actually do a lot of rewatching or because I, I always log the movie when it comes out in the podcast. So I'll log the same thing twice, essentially. Mm. I don't know. My, my most liked review is from Artemis Fowl. That's your most liked review. Yeah. I'm pretty sure mine is marriage story. How many do you have on Artemis Fowl? Only four likes, but that's four more than I. That's usually your most get. liked review. You know, you know how much my marriage story review has? Uh, like twenty. Nineteen. Oh, one off! Look at that. <laughs> yeah, I consider that a that, victory. That's it's pretty good. Patrick Willems, Ireland should prosecute Kenneth Branagh for war crimes. <laughs> 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 i'm can i just say that that is one of the only things that's making me excited to finally see tenet mm. oh kenneth brown in, in it yeah <laughs> as an yeah. as a russian guy the reviewer matt singer wrote extreme benoit blanc voice i suspect foul play <laughs> This is another movie I'll have watched by the next time. Vengeance is mine. This is a movie that I picked up purely. Well, I, I was going to say purely on cover art, but also because it was $19. Which is cheap for Criterion. For, for a used Criterion. I've yet to have a used Criterion that did not work. I yeah, yet to have a used Blu-ray that did not work. I've had one and it was once the movie with Mark Ruffalo. Oddly enough, the the two criterions I always see on sale and used. Well, one of them's Benjamin Button 
Because it's a weird anomaly. I have it. In the Criterion. You have it? Yeah. I well, just, I don't I found it for like two bucks. How could I say no? Every time I go to Z, there's literally it. like a stack of Benjamin Button Criterions for like six bucks. I'm still not going to buy it. But the other one I always see is Seventh Seal for some reason. Hmm. Seventh Seal's good. So. What's your problem? First movie. First cow. You want to introduce it? First cow. Yes. Who's introducing I'll introduce First Cow. Okay. First Go Cow is a, is a movie by Kelly Reichardt. It was supposed to come out this year, and then the world ended. So it's now out on digital and Blu-ray now, and it's the story of two uh, settlers in the old American West trying to make a living and a business off of the milk of a cow, the titular First Cow in this part of the country. That's the most bare bones plot description i can give because it's a very slow slow movie where not that much happens the movie is not about milking the cow it's about the friends you make along the way (laughs) and i don't mean that as a joke but it is a joke too it's true it's both it's both uh i'm curious to hear what you thought about this because i don't know if you felt the same way but the whole time i was watching this was I was just thinking that there's some serious dead man vibes throughout this entire thing. So uh, I can see how you think that. And with that comparison in mind, I think this is better because it's in color. And uh, <laughs> I think the Pacific Northwest deserves to be in color and not black and white. That's fair. Also, I need to give dead man a, a, a rewatch. I like dead man. I don't. For the record. For the record. (laughs) (laughs) But we're not talking about Dead Man. I mean, we were. We're talking about First Cow. Yes. First Cow was good. I think it might be one of my more favorite Kelly Reichardt films. I don't know, though. How many have you seen? Uh, I've only seen two. Quite a bit. I've seen five, maybe even six. She was on my my 2020 director's five films. Hmm five films yeah she's an interesting director like the thing that i find interesting about this film is that the the marketing the trailer for the film i don't think did a good job of adequately preparing people for the pacing of this film it didn't because i was expecting something a lot more quick paced i the the vibe of this movie a24 that aspect ratio about a cow for some reason i thought oh this will be like 90 minutes if that it's like two hours and 12 minutes yeah it i think the biggest issue going into this film and i know there was some there there was a not backlash there's some negativity around the film mostly because i think people were sold something on the trailer that it wasn't one yeah. that it wasn't and if you've seen a kelly Reichardt film before then you know surprise (laughs) what her her directing style is and there has there's never been a deviation from that pacing no and shot type and this is no exception but i think i like this film in particular because i am in love with the pacific northwest and that whole geography and the greenery of that land so that held me for the most of the runtime and the kind of charming relationship at the center of the film. Yeah. I really like, uh, held the rest of the film for King Lou. What'd you think in general? I I liked it. Um, I've only seen two Kelly Reichardt movies, um, this and Meeks cut off and I found Meeks cut off. Meeks cut off was barely 90 minutes and it was one of the longest movies I've ever seen in my life. It was boring. It was just not interesting until like the last two minutes. And maybe it's because I I know a bit more about her style, about her preference for the slower pace that I liked this movie more. Um, But I also just found that there's a lot more. A lot more thematically going on in this movie. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, Because whenever you set a movie in the American West, there's a few key ideas that you're hitting at inherently but uh, this movie is very much tackling these sort of 
um, the business practices and the sort of American dream at its inception in this landscape in a way that I actually think is really interesting. Um, also, it's not as lavish a food movie as other food movies, but it's a good food movie. So I, I mentioned this to Chandler before, but I'm going to reiterate this on the, the podcast. So I was watching the film and about halfway through the, the, um, there's a scene with food and specifically biscuits. And I felt uh, I said to myself, I could really go for a biscuit right now. <laughs> so I paused the movie, looked up a recipe for biscuits, went out into the kitchen, made biscuits, came back and watched the rest of the movie. And that was the correct decision to make. Yeah, God, I was starving. I just eaten and I and I was still hungry because the thing about a, a good food movie is that a good food movie typically until I watch this movie, I assume that, you know, it's all about the, the stylish presentation of how it's made, how it looks, how people react. But the food in this movie does not look all that great. It looks simple. It doesn't look mm-hmm. bad. It just looks simple. But the way that. The, the hysteria around the food really makes it look better than it actually looks. You get caught up in the hysteria just as much as the characters yeah. do. And that that leads me to believe that there's something kind of primal about a food movie. <laughs> like, I'm, I'm, I'm unsure why more movies don't tap into this, because I feel like there's something inherently interesting about that. And I think the popularity of food channels on YouTube kind of are a testament to that like it can be the trashiest shit in the world and even like um culturally cultural snobs will still watch really trashy food stuff there's something just inherently relatable about any kind of food so take take a mcdonald's cheeseburger and the the film equivalent of a mcdonald's cheeseburger i would argue is money plane (laughs) now those two (laughs) Those two operate on the same wavelength, but people will be like, oh, I'll eat that cheeseburger. I'm not going to go see Money Plane. There is the cheeseburger that... takes five minutes of their time and <laughs> yeah. it tastes good for, for that five minutes. It does. Um, and I also think a huge part of why the food works so well in this movie is that, you know, it's the Wild West. It's a simpler time. People are dressed really uh, vintagely and it's not the technology is all that there it's pretty barren as far as civilization goes. So when you see that little bit of something that still looks good by today's standards, it looks even better comparatively, Mm. but they are some good looking biscuits. Interestingly enough, my, my issues with the film aren't the pacing. I thought it was for the film. It was paced really well because it is, it's slow, but it builds up. You don't meet the cow until an hour into the movie. Yeah. Yeah. Ironically enough, the, my main issues with the film are it's ambiguous time frame and the ambiguous nature of the West that it is portraying. And you don't, I'm not sure you really think about it, which is why this isn't much of a criticism because the film is more focused on their, on the, the main friendship that is at the, the heart of this film. Yeah. And that's the important thing. And I think the film gets that right. But, at the same time, the movie is taking place, according to Wikipedia, and I think it, it's correct, in 1820. Wow, okay. Which is interesting, later. because yeah. I think you can't exactly place what year it is when you're watching it. No. But if it is 1820, that makes sense, because from like 1820 to 1850, the Oregon Territory was jointly controlled by the United States and the UK. So it wasn't, it it wasn't actually a territory yet. It was just kind of a lawless area. And the film doesn't really make it clear as to what kind of government or territory there is around here. Yeah. Um, So there's a character chief factor. Is he actually a chief or do they just call him that? There's a native American family living with him, but, why is the territory <laughs> dangerous to live in? It should be because this is before most of the like wagon trains and all that. This is yeah. before most of that happened. Like this is in the beginning of when people yeah, are you don't see any wagons. Yeah, it's all walking. It's wild country. You don't really get a good grip on like the outside. Like what is happening 
the political nature of what is going on here. And it's almost like a fantasy land. Yeah. And that works to a certain extent. It certainly creates a good atmosphere, but at, at the same time, it kind of interferes with the stakes and the motivation of the characters for me, at yeah. least in that I didn't know what the penalty for stealing was. And apparently the penalty was nothing other than chief factor had security guards. Like that's it. Like he, he isn't actually a chief really. Like he doesn't have, there's not a political authority. There's not police or anything. And I didn't really get the sense of that until after the film, yeah. when I started thinking about it. That is, it is one of those things that the whole time I was watching it, I did think wild west, no rules, that sort of thing. But it was such a tame and quiet movie that when it at, at the end, when they get caught milking the cow and they are being pursued and like trying to be killed, I, that's the whole time. The whole time I was just thinking, OK, that seems a little severe. Yeah. But that it was it's one of those things that for a moment I thought, oh, that's pretty severe. But then immediately I'm just like Wild West. Who gives a shit? Everybody dies in the Wild West. So it's not something that essentially me. Yeah. Yeah. I was a little more bothered by the pace of it, um, but similar to Dead Man, it's one of those movies that the the whole time I was watching it, I was like, ugh, get on with it. But now that it's over, I think about it quite a bit, like another movie we're getting to. But can I just say, that cow is beautiful. It's a good that cow. A, that was a, that was a, a good, good cow. Yeah. Well, yeah, you can't milk a male cow. <laughs> you could try. <laughs> Unless unless you're Otis from Barnyard, <laughs> the Nickelodeon animated film Barnyard, where the titular cow Otis had an udder and his dad had an udder. <laughs> Do you remember the movie I'm talking about? I remember it very, very vaguely. I know enough to to recognize it, well, but not to point, know anything. The point else. is, the main character it was a guy named Otis and he had an udder. <laughs> And he shot milk at people. Yes. Um, but yes, that was a great cow. Um, and, you know, the the dead man uh, comparisons are apt, I think, because it is another movie that it takes place in a more forested Wild West. Um, it's pretty low stakes. Um, it, it, it doesn't really feel like a traditional Western, but it's it is a Western. And the big thing was that the main the core of both dead man and this movie are the friendships between a white and a non-white person in these times. And both in both movies, the white person is a little more subdued and awkward. And then the non-white person is a lot more eccentric and just a better character overall. Um, but I love King Lou in this movie. I think he's great that actor his voice is so nice probably he's the strongest part of the film if i were to pick between the two of them and mostly because i think his motivations throughout the movie are consistent and well defined yeah in in the proper order because what well one of the things with him is you know he's an asian american immigrant and mm -hmm. i got interested in like what was the history of Asian American immigrants? So I listened to a history, American history podcast and listened to an episode about Asian American immigration. <laughs> and it was interesting that a fact, uh, something that I found was that I know it is. Ah, yes. Okay. So Chinese immigrants numbered less than 400 by the year 1848. Wow. So uh, <laughs> after that, a lot more started coming over. So it's interesting that to build the railroads, the film, yeah. you would think that a film about heavily features a Asian American or an Asian immigrant to the North American continent, because I, I don't think you can call it America quite yet where they're at. No, yeah. it doesn't really deal with prejudice all that much. It's kind of there yeah. in the beginning and then not so much for the rest of it. And it's also interesting to think about how. One of the issues I, I had thinking about the film later on was that why does he know such good English? Like if he was actually an immigrant during this time, I feel like there would be it'd be very broken English. But this is more it of doesn't kind of matter. It doesn't. That's why. 
I'm not saying it does, which is why I preface this entire conversation with a lot of my issues with the film come with how the background of everything could have been a little more fleshed out, but the actual point and the key moments of the film work and are correctly paced. Yeah. So it's more so just the background stuff. And this is, these are small issues that I wish were maybe addressed more, but mm-hmm. I'm not necessarily lamenting their loss. Yeah, no, I agree. Um, it, 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 it feels Western enough to feel like the American West, but it's so isolated and, and stripped down that it feels like a fictionalized version of that world. Mm-hmm. Um, I also really love the ending. Because it's one of those endings that's ambiguous, but, you know, if you if you pay attention at all in the beginning, you know exactly what happens. It's those kinds of like mini puzzles that I think are fun. It's not, you know, it's not a difficult ending to surmise, but it's just it's (laughs) it's nice not nice in in what happens. (laughs) No. Yes. We are talking about two films that end with a bit of a puzzle. One is a bit more of a puzzle. One of them is a lot easier to solve. One isn't is barely a puzzle. You just have to be paying attention. Yeah. Which, you know, I like it's not the most complicated ending, but no, but it is that does leave you with a little bit like think about what you just watched, which is nice. Yeah. From a film. Yeah. It doesn't leave you completely wrapped up in a nice little bow. They. they, Yeah. So they, they, they show you the beginning, what happens to these two characters. And then we get to a scene that obviously precedes what happens and they don't show you exactly what happens. And the whole time you're thinking, Oh God, is it going to happen? And then it just ends. And I'm like, Oh, it's one of those movies that's so like devoid of tension, but it's so devoid of tension that in those moments that are tense, they're really, really tense. Like every time they went to go milk the cow, I was just like, Oh, hurry. It's one of the most tense Kelly Reichardt films. Yeah, uh, well, you know, compared to well, what are the other ones have you seen? Have you seen Wendy and Lucy? I have. That one's probably seen... might be my favorite. I don't know. Maybe that one's your time. favorite? Yeah, yeah. I mean, with a film about a dog. <laughs> <laughs> What's the other one about the gross-looking Santa Claus? Oh, I don't know that one. Old Joy. Old Joy. Yeah, I haven't seen that one. It's in the Criterion Collection. Oh, uh, hold on. I old Joy old joy has a gross Santa Claus and then right above him. Not Adrian Brody. <laughs> I feel like that's a, a mix between Adrian Brody and Timothy Chalamet. Oh, oh no. Uh, the main guy cookie in this movie. Did you recognize him at all? He looked familiar, but I didn't. Uh, he no. was one of the guys. Did you ever see the big short? I did. Yes. He's one of the two college guys that ah. tried to work with Brad Pitt to, you know, better uh, picture of him. Yeah. Yes. So yeah, first cow. First cow, pretty good. Good. The, I like it. If you're into nature, I feel like that's in general for Kelly Reichardt's films. Oh, especially yes. Especially Meek's cutoff. But uh, it is just very placidly filmed Pacific Northwest scenic cinematography. Lots and of babbling brooks. That That alone made it worth it for me as a film. I watched it too late at night. <laughs> Cookie and uh, Lou's friendship was just kind of like the icing on top of the Pacific Northwest cupcake. It's a it's a wholesome vibe. It's a good movie. If you don't like slow movies, you're going to hate this one. It's slow. Like, I, I, I have to say that it's not like a slow movie where I, I would say, hey, you just need to relax and you would like it. Well, yeah. this is if you don't like slow movies, don't even bother. Kind of yeah. <laughs> well, because I we refrain from calling it a slow burn because a slow burn implies there's fire at the end. No, <laughs> there's a nap at the end. <laughs> that gives you an it adequate is, picture. Yeah, it's I mean, I I kind of like slow movies. There has to be a vibe there and there was definitely a vibe here. So. I like Westerns. I like I like food. I like nature. It was a good movie. You own it. I do. Uh, I do own it. Yes. And now I, I have I'm... the the digital copy. Oh, yeah, that is where. OK, yeah, that's which that is which where. is on as with any code you give me. I'm putting it on the uh, the film sync account 
and I put the password <laughs> up online. So if you really wanted it, you'd... no, I'm fucking fixed. Yeah, uh, this is this is. But the I will give it a rewatch. I think at some point. Yeah, I, I will. Return. Me too. It it did make me want to watch Meek's Cutoff again, because I know a lot of people that really like that. I'm I'm curious to give her other movies a try. I just need some sort of action before I do that, <laughs> because we're the next movie we're discussing is similar, but not, but not, but not.